Welcome to NephHacks, high-yield nephrology at your fingertips. This is your host, Andrew Kowalski. I'm the founder of NephHacks, and I'm also a practicing nephrologist. Please visit us at www.nephhacks.com. That's N-E-P-H-H-A-C-K-S dot com. Also, join us on our Facebook group where I'll be posting updates on our podcast as well as general updates in the field of nephrology. Let's get ready to make nephrology fun again. Hey, welcome to another podcast. This is Andrew Kowalski, founder of NephHacks, and I'll be your host today. So we talked about a lot of um, nephrology tidbits in terms of structured function, in terms of autoregulation, the way the tubules work, and so forth. So let's start moving into the meat of it. So what I'm going to do is I'm also recording this um, via video because when I tend to do a lot of my talks, I love to draw. I've always been a very visual person. So I tend to draw things out and it makes more sense to me. So I'm going to try to do that for the folks listening to it. And I will post this video on YouTube and I'll also post it on my webpage. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about hyponatremia. So hyponatremia historically, right, is a sodium, sorry, my pen's not working so well, of less than 135. This is terrible. 135. There we go. Here, let's rewrite that. 135. Okay? So, typical range of sodium is between 135 and 145. I kind of want you to get out of the habit of looking at ranges. So, pick the number that is the correct number, right? So, 140 is what the sodium should be in the serum, right? 141, you're a little hypernatremic. 139, you're a little hyponatremic. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean you're going to have symptoms. That doesn't mean you really have to do anything. But it's going to get you in the habit of looking at numbers and looking at what the norm is. And this is going to play a huge role when we start talking about acid and base. Okay? So, some of the things that I want to go over, and you heard me talk about this in some of the other podcasts, is algorithms. I'm going to draw this out like an algorithm, but I want to point out that algorithms, again, do not work. I am not a fan of algorithms. I think they're great for the test, and you need to know them for the test because that's how the questions are written. They're based on the algorithms. But algorithms bring you down a road where you typically have one answer. And in clinical practice, that's usually not the case. And that's usually not the case with hyponatremia or anything like that. So what I want you to do is I want you to get comfortable with the physiology of it and re-listen to this podcast and watch this video a couple times so it can help reinforce certain key concepts. Okay? So for starters, the number one question is when you're worried about hyponatremia is what's the sodium? So question mark sodium, right? Is it high or low? And from there, if you go down the algorithm, the algorithm is going to tell you about your serum osms, right? But this is where I pause. So I'll write that down, serum osms, because that's the algorithm. So here, if your sodium is less than 135, you're going to go down the route of osms. So I'm writing this down on my sheet of paper as we're doing the podcast. And osms are broken down into three components. You have hyper, iso, and hypo, okay? 
So for hyperosmolar, what we're looking at is anything that is added to the serum, if you want to put it that way, that's going to contribute to the movement of water. So there's a couple of things I always want to go over. So one is your serum osm and tonicity. So your serum osm is a great equation to know. It's two times the sodium plus your glucose over the molecular weight plus your BUN over the molecular weight, right? So what ends up happening is if your glucose is low and your BUN is low, then it really doesn't matter and all you really have to look at is two times the sodium for your serum osms and then you get your answer, right? If you look at tonicity, tonicity is the push and pull of fluid across a membrane. So again, it's two times the sodium plus glucose divided by its molecular weight. BUN is not included because BUN is a small molecule and freely crosses the cell membranes. So it doesn't really contribute to the push and pull of fluid, which is the tone. So if you want to think of it like your muscle, right? Your muscle has a tone to it. It's not completely flaccid. So if you pick your arm up, you, you know, you have some components of your muscle pulling you know, at the flexion point of your elbow. So your bicep is pulling and then your tricep is pulling. So you have this set tone. So same thing with fluid. But the key factor is the majority of the equation is two times the sodium. So what's a normal osm, right? Give or take 280. So if your sodium is, what, 140 times 2, what does that give you, right? So all you really have to do is take a look at the sodium to know what your osm is going to be. And I feel that there's a reflex to always do this, to confirm if it's a hyperosmolar or not. And this is where I have problems with it, because I think it wastes time. And the reason why is this. Let's say you have someone who's hyperosmolar, right? So that means their osms are greater than 280, right, for whatever reason. So why is that? So from a hyponatremia perspective, there's only a couple things that will cause that. So you're looking at glucose. You're looking at, so glucose, I guess, we're put in a box because that's actually probably the most important one. But then you're looking at additives, right? So you're thinking your mannitol. If you get any um, reabsorption of sorbitol, which technically shouldn't because it's a non-absorbable saccharide, but... There's been reports of having sorbitol reabsorption when you're getting uh, bladder irrigation, so when they do cystoscopies, your IVIGs. So these are all compounds, right? And your IVIG also is mixed sometimes with sorbitol or it's mixed with another uh, component, so another filler. So what I'm trying to get at is this. If you have somebody, right, the first thing that you learn about a patient isn't what their labs are. The first thing you learn is why they present it, right? I mean, that's kind of the course of how we talk to other physicians, how we discuss patients and whatnot. So we're going to say, oh, this person came in, they had DKA, or this person came in, they had hyperosmolar, um, 
hyperglycemic syndrome or this person came in and you know they were getting bladder irrigation or they had something given or whatnot so you're going to know the history already so why would you check a serum osm to already know that it's going to be high based on the history right if someone tells you that a patient comes in with DKA or with HHS, so hyperosmolar hyperglycemic syndrome, then you know the glucose is going to be super high, right? It's going to be greater than 100. It's going to be greater than 500. Most likely, it's going to be closer to 1,000. So what's the point of doing a serum osm to tell you that your hyperosmolar, when you can see on your BMP or your CMP, that your glucose is elevated? To me, this is a waste of time. It's a waste of space. And the other things, like mannitol. When do you ever give mannitol? Right? Mannitol is an osmotic diuretic, but that's not what it's really used for. Mannitol is used for cerebral edema. So typically, it's used in uh, neuro ICUs. So if you have somebody who has cerebral edema and you want to control what, you know, the edema, you want to drive the, you want to drive the serum osms to 350. And one way to do it is to give mannitol because mannitol will drive the osms up, right? And that's going to pull fluid and that's going to help with cerebral edema. Another thing you can do, and they do in the neuro ICUs, is they give what's called a bullet. And it's the highest concentration of sodium chloride that does not precipitate out, which is 23%. So think about it, right? We give 3% for hyponatremia. This is 23%. So it's a tremendous amount. You put in a little bullet and there's serum osms drive all the way up and you're good to go. But again, if you're giving mannitol, you're going to know that in the history, right? There's no way you're not going to know that. If you're getting IVIG for whatever reason, you're going to know that in the history, right? It's very unlikely that you're not. Now, there could be scenarios where, you know, a person's found down, they're not identified, you know, it's a John Doe, Jane Doe kind of situation, and you got to work things up. That happens very, very rarely. In that case, yes, absolutely, I say do a serum osm. The reason being is when we talk about acid-base disorders, and we talk about metabolic acidosis, and we talk about ingestion, checking for these ingested alcohols takes time. But you can get a serum osm back very quick. And if your serum osm, sorry, I'm writing this down for the video, is elevated, and then you do your calculated, and your calculated is relatively normal. So if this difference is greater than 10, then you know that you have a hyperosmolar additive and it's not going to hurt you to go down the treatment route, given fulmepazole, so forth, right? Those are relatively benign in the grand scheme of things compared to what methanol intoxication, ethylene glycol intoxication, and all that will cause. So yes, there is a role to check a serum osm, but in the majority of cases, you're going to know what's happening based on the history, and I think this is going to be a gross waste of time. And I put glucose in a box because that's the majority of what we're going to end up seeing in a hospital setting is we're going to see a hyperosmolar picture because of hyperglycemia. And what I want to point out is there's an equation for this, right? The equation is 1.6 for every 100 
that's above 100. So what does that mean? So your, your sodium is going to change 1.6 milliequivalents every time your serum glucose is 100 over 100. So if your serum glucose is 400, that is 300 above, so take 3 times 1.6, right? And then that's how your sodium should change. So it's nice if you have a DKA patient, you can quickly do this equation. And most likely, when they present and you see the initial labs, their sodium will be roughly normal. And then you do this equation in um, respect to their glucose, and you realize that they're actually hypernatremic, which is typically one of the main presentations of DKA patients. So that's that. Now, this is what I want to point out. When you look at these numbers, right, this is an ugly number, 1.6. 1.6 is not intuitive. It doesn't, you can't quickly do the math with 1.6, right? And there's a lot of equations that are out there. We're going to get into some with acid base and so forth. But what I want to point out is if you're a purist, right, and you're a researcher and you want to know what the exact calculation is, what the exact number is, by all means, right, this is how you should be doing it. But if you're a clinician, right, do you honestly have to get the sodium, you know, that perfect? What is the difference in terms of management, whether your sodium in terms of hyponatremia is 128 versus 125? There really isn't a difference. Or vice versa. What's your management or how is your management going to change if your serum sodium is 151 or 155? It's really not going to change. You're still going to do the same thing. So what I tend to say, because there is literature that says that if your glucose is greater than 400, so let's say this patient has a glucose of 900, you're looking at about 2 for every 100 over uh, 400, right? So make your life easier. I always tend to round up. 2 is a beautiful number. It's very easy to do. And you're going to be within the ballpark range. So if your sodium is greater than 145, you are going to do the exact same thing. If your sodium is less than 135, you are going to do the exact same thing. It doesn't matter where it falls. So as a clinician, you need to be in the ballpark. As a researcher, you need to be accurate. So it depends on what your flavor is, and it depends on what you prefer to do. I am very much a clinician. My job is to make sure that whoever I'm seeing, badness isn't going to befault them, and I can get them out of whatever badness they're in. So I'm going to go ballpark because it's not going to change my management, and it's going to tell me how bad in one direction or the other, and that's all I really need to know, right? So that's that. So hyperosmolar, these are pretty much what you're going to see. This is what you're going to get most of the time is your glucose. And in reality, you don't need to check it. But there are cases where you possibly should. And this is where if you have a Jane or John Doe, or if you have somebody that you're suspecting ingestion. And if your gap is greater than 10, just go ahead and start treating. Because it's going to take time for the other things to come back. So that's that. You're going to get most of it from your history. ISO, we really don't even see anymore. So I'm putting a question mark there. Right? And it's because of the way the sample is done. So it's whether the sample is checked via the plasm is being analyzed or the whole blood sample is being analyzed. So our new machines tend to differentiate this really, really well. 
So if you have somebody who is hyponatremic and you're worried about an isoosmolar picture, you're going to get the correct number, right? The sodium will most likely not be low because our machines can detect the difference. And if there is any concern, then all you have to do is order an ABG or even make it easier, order a VBG with electrolytes. You get those back extremely fast and the mechanism that analyzes what the contents is is super accurate and will give you the correct measurements. So if you're ever questioning if this sample might be quote unquote contaminated because there's other things floating around, then just send off a VBG. You'll get it back in 20 minutes and you're going to know exactly what's going on. So I think this is not even worth talking about. But for the sake of our discussion, when we're talking about isoosmolar, it's anything that's added osm-wise that's not going to affect tonicity. Okay? So we're talking about triglycerides. We're talking about, I guess, any sort of like um, dyslipidemia. So I'll just put down HLD. So hyperlipidemias, any paraproteinemias, right? So this is where your questions are going to come in. You're going to see this in the paraproteinemias, right? So these are your multiple myeloma, your Walden storms, your MGUS. Then you even have your M, uh, M Rus, I guess. So it's M or MGRS, monoclonal gammopathy of renal significance. So these are all your paraproteinemias. These are going to add to the sample and it's going to falsely lower your sodium. Your sodium's not any different, your tonicity is the same, but it's just more stuff that's added. Now again, our machines can detect this. And I put a little asterisk because I've seen it not work once. You know, I've seen people with elevated triglycerides, I've seen people with some pretty profound dyslipidemias, I've seen folks with paraproteinemias, and their sodium is maybe off by two milliequivalents. It's nothing crazy, it's not gonna change your management. But I was called once on someone with hyper, hypertriglyceridemia, and we were called for hyponatremia, the serum sodium was 126, 127, so it wasn't terrible, right? But it was low, so they called nephrology to see what's going on and we asked all these questions like you know are you on a diuretic you know all the standard questions right do you eat how much do you drink blah 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 are you on a diuretic you know all that stuff and what ended up happening is we found out the it was a relatively young individual he was in his 40s he was a construction worker and he was a true weekend warrior in the sense so he basically ate out monday through friday and he would eat like his pizza, his burgers, his beef sandwiches, you know, high sodium, high caloric intake. And then on the weekend, he would just hit the alcohol really hard. So he would just go through an entire case of beer in a day, but he wouldn't drink during the week. So when you looked at him, phenotypically speaking, he looked like he had metabolic syndrome right? He had the central obesity, he had the typical changes in his labs, and when we asked, because we didn't have the lipid panel back, when we asked what his blood looked like when they drew it, the nurse told us that it was kind of pinkish. It was very light red to pink. So that gave us our answer, and when the numbers came back, he had hypertriglyceridemia of over a thousand. So that's the only asterisk I have. And yes, there is a correction for this. There's an equation. You know, you'd have to look it up, but it's very rarely will that ever happen. And to tell you the truth, he had no pancreatitis symptoms, nothing like that. He was just really bad metabolic syndrome, right? But yes, 
So these, important to know for the test, not important to know in real practice because you will differentiate. And then the vast majority, I'd say probably about 80%, is going to be hypoosmolar. Right? This is a true low sodium. And all you have to do is take whatever sodium it is, whether it's 100 or 120, whatever, and just double it. And that's pretty much what your osm is going to be because most likely in these scenarios, the glucose is normal and the BUN is normal. Okay? So we're going to go down this way and then we're going to differentiate into hypo u hyper. Just making sure you can see this on the video. Now, the big differentiation here is volume, right? So are you hypovolemic? Are you euvolemic? Are you hypervolemic? And this is when we go up to my little corner right here. So serum osm, I'm like, uh, I really don't think it's important unless the story points to it, which would be in this scenario. But what I really want is I want a volume assessment. So what's the sodium? Is it low? Great. What's the volume? That's the next most important thing. Because these you'll know from the history. Right? Now volume is a little tricky. Because with volume, you put five doctors in a room and all five doctors will give you a different volume exam. Right? And it's tricky. So this is actually one of the few times that I will encourage the use of FINA. I very rarely employ FINA for um, AKIs, even though that's what it's intended for. And it helps differentiate between being pre-renal or being post-renal, right? Or renal, right? So you're either not getting enough flow to the kidney, so you're conserving everything. So when you end up checking your urine lights, they are low, right? Because you're holding on to it. Or something else is going on and your kidney is trying to maintain homeostasis. So whatever you're taking in, it's dumping. So it's not retaining any sodium. But this plays a huge role in this because if you can check a FINA in these, it will help differentiate the biggest confusion is right here, right? Sorry, I just moved my paper up for the video. So if you're hypervolemic, right, you're going to have edema. Done. If you walk into the patient's room and you push on their leg and you leave a fingerprint, you have your answer. There's really no need to do anything else. But a lot of times, we're stuck here, right? We're trying to figure out if their volume down. We do a skin trigger test. You know, there's maybe some recoil. There's a little bit of tenting. You know, you're not sure. You do it again, and it snaps back nicely. Now you're back to the drawing board. Like, well, what is it? You know, you want to look in their mouth to see if their mouth is dry, but they're a mouth breather, so there goes that. You know, you do your cap refill, and maybe they have nail polish on. So you have all these, you know, confounding factors. And then, you know, your cap refill might be a little different than somebody else's based on where you press, how you press, how you count. So it gets sloppy. So this is where I say always, always, always check a urine sodium, you always have to check a urine creatinine with that because you want to do your calculation against what the kidney is doing at that time. And you want to check a urine osm. So urine sodium, urine creatinine is a nice surrogate for volume status because if it's low, the kidney's conserving. And if you're hyponatremic and the kidney's conserving, technically the kidney's working. So it's a volume issue, right? But 
if your urine sodium is high and your sodium is low, well, then it's not a volume issue. And when we talk about volume, then so volume triggers RAS and it triggers ADH. So we'll get to that in a second. So then it's got to be an ADH issue and not a volume issue, which is SIADH. So this is what's really cool. So let's move to another sheet of paper really quick. So when we talk about hyponatremia, so anything that has a low so uh, 120, 135, sorry, my table has grooves, so it's making it a little trickier to write. So your sodium is 135, right? Sodium is a water problem, all right? We have to get that in our head. So I'm at fault on this too, just by how we talk to our patients, but this is where and I'm sure everyone's had this encounter where you'll say something and a nephrologist will snap and you're like, oh, it's semantics. It's the same thing. No, it's not. All right. So I get it. You know, I used to be that person when I was a resident. Now being an attending, I totally get it. But this is what I want to get across. When we talk about sodium, we talk about water. So sodium equals water. Okay. And, th and it's a surrogate marker. So if the sodium is low because the body wants to keep itself in homeostasis, that means it's trying to maintain sodium as much as possible, then the only reason why you have low sodium, because it's such an important electrolyte, is that you have an increase in water, right? And that means free water. But if your sodium is high, then you have a decrease in water because what we're talking about when we talk about serum sodium is we talk about concentration so if the concentration of the sodium is high that means the water content is low if the concentration of the sodium is low that means the water content is high now where we tend to and everyone's at fault on this including nephrologists when we talk to patients is we talk about hydration Hydration implies water. So you're either dehydrated or you're overhydrated. Right? When we talk about volume, volume equals sodium plus water. Okay? That's volume sodium and water right so think of normal saline says sodium chloride and water but sodium water that's volume water is just sodium meaning serum sodium so when we talk about volume what do we think of we think of blood pressure right either high or low if it's low we think of orthostasis And then following orthostasis and following low blood pressure as well, what do we have? We have poor organ perfusion, which means AKI. So if you see an AKI, right, pre-renal, renal, whatever, right, an AKI, that implies, or pre-renal, I guess, is the way to kind of go with this. So a pre-renal AKI, that means that there's a volume issue because volume means inside blood vessels, right? That's volume. Water is everywhere else, 
right? So if you think about it, you have body compartments, right? So if you look at this drawing, assume this is your body, right? It's a nice box. And this is intracell. And this is two-thirds of all your body water is intracellular. And then you have one-third is extracell. But out of that, so one, one, two, three, four, one quarter of the extracellular is intravascular. So this is sodium plus water. This is volume, which equals volume. This is water, or in other words, free water. Okay, so when we talk about concentration of sodium, we talk about water. And that's the water that's in the cell and out of the cell. So in the cell and interstitium. If we talk about volume, which implies blood pressure, which also implies edema, which implies high or low. So if it's low, it also probably has something to do with orthostasis, right? They stand up, they get dizzy, which means that you don't have enough flow to any of your organs. And since the kidney, since we heard in the previous podcast, receives 20% of your cardiac output, which is a lot, and an 8-gram piece of kidney is about 11 liters of blood in an hour, that's a lot, then we're looking at poor organ perfusion. So if your volume is down, poor organ perfusion. If your volume is up, you have edema. So why is that? If your volume is up, this ends up filling up to the max, and then you start getting spillover right? Spillover. And that spillover fills up the interstitial space. What is edema? It's fluid in the interstitial space. So historically, we talk about dehydration to patients saying, oh, you're AKI, you're a little dehydrated, drink some water, yada, yada, yada. But that is wrong. If we talk about sodium, that's hydration. If we talk about AKI, blood pressure, orthostasis, orthostasis edema, we talk about volume, okay? So you can be volume depleted, right? Orthostasis, poor perfusion, AKI, but overhydrated. So there's a little mind blow. Volume depleted, overhydrated. Volume depleted, dehydrated. You can be volume replete, right? Edema. And you can be overhydrated. You can be volume replete or hypervolemic, hypervolemic and you can be dehydrated, right? Now, there's specific cases in some of these, right, that only happen in certain instances. But remember, this is a free water issue. This is a salt and water issue, totally different. So now that we said this, when we talk about hyponatremia, hyponatremia is sodium, which is a water issue. Hyponatremia is a ADH issue. So what do I mean? So we go back to my little crude drawing of the nephron, right? We have your proximal, your loop, your distal, your convoluted, and right here you have your macula densa, right? So what happens? 
you have filtration, you have reabsorption, you have coming down, so you have water reabsorption, you're coming up, you have solute reabsorption, and then you get here, and then you have a sensor, right? What's happening? What are we sensing? We're sensing chloride, right? And we're getting feedback to the afferent, and so that's afferent vasoconstriction with feedback. But what else happens? In the neurohormonal aspect, you have renin. Renin leads to, ultimately, aldosterone. And in between, you have angiotensin II, right? Now, what's interesting is in your body, right, you have baroreceptors and you have osmoreceptors. Your brain has an osmoreceptor. So if your osms go up, meaning your free water is coming down, you're going to have ADH secretion, right? But if your volume down, right, you might not necessarily initially have an issue with your hydration status, but the body is a shotgun, right? If it notices that something's off, it releases everything. Usually, it releases whatever hormone or compound that's needed most, the most, and everything else gets kind of released, you know, minimally. But it's a shotgun. Everything gets released. And I always state that RAS, ADH, all that, they are stress hormones. So you get your leg cut off, you're bleeding out. What happens? RAS gets activated because you want to conserve blood pressure. Right? You're out in the desert, all that stuff. What happens? RAS gets activated because you want to conserve as much fluid as you possibly can. So it's a stress hormone. We'll see this when we talk about SIADH and pain and nausea. But what happens is if you're volume down, right? So you're reabsorbing, you're reabsorbing fluid, you're reabsorbing solute, right? Your countercurrent mechanism. And then when you get to here, you're sensing chloride, you're sensing flow, and it's low. So not only do you have afferent, right? Constriction dilatation to maintain GFR, but now you're going to have renin angiotensin to aldo release. Well, what happens is, is in the blood brain barrier, you have angiotensin one will shoot across, angiotensin two will be made, and that will cause, there's my little pituitary, posterior, we'll get a discharge of ADH. So, when you're volume depleted, you're not only going to have RAS on board, but you're going to have a discharge of ADH, right? And what happens is at the end, because here you have sodium and water reabsorbed, so you're going to have your sodium plus water reabsorbed, but you're going to have your aquaporins, and that's going to absorb water. So this is going to be nothing plus water. So you're going to have, if you want to think of it this way, one sodium to two waters. You disproportionately will absorb more water than you will sodium. So your volume is going to be corrected, but you're also going to correct all the intracellular components. Now this makes sense because the majority of the fluid in our body is intracellular and extracellular, right? There's a lot there. So if you're bleeding out, hemorrhaging, burns, whatever you want to call it, right? You're losing your content. So you want to replete that. You want to replete the vascular space, which is a lot, but in reality, it's a small component. 
So you're repleting your vascular space, but you're also repleting your extracellular and intracellular spaces. But depending what scenario we're in, right, this can be harmful. And that's where we get into all these other cases. So hopefully this makes sense. So again, this video is going to be posted on uh, YouTube. It's going to be posted on my NefHacks website so you guys can review it and take a look at it. I'm sorry for the scribbles. One of my big um, laughs that I have is, you know, I'll have students take pictures of this and I'll draw arrows back and forth, back and forth. And to me, it's just a bunch of chicken scratch. But they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to look at it. I'm going to memorize it. I'm like, I don't even know what I wrote. So we're going to take a pause. So review the initial portion of hyponatremia and serum osms, the equation, tonicity, the conversion when you have hyperglycemia, and then a little bit of the fizz and the semantics of what we talk about hydration and what we talk about volume, okay? Because I'm going to be using those words a lot and how all this gets activated. So looking forward to talking to you on the next podcast.